It was November 12th of 2020, and there was a lot going on at the time. It had been less than a week since the networks had called the 2020 presidential election for Joe Biden. Donald Trump was just beginning his campaign to deny that result and to try and overturn it. Just a few days prior, Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, gave his infamous Four Seasons landscaping press conference to contest the election results. We all remember that. Trump had decided to deny President-elect Biden access to the classified presidential daily briefing, as was the custom in presidential transitions, which in retrospect seems a little bit ironic. Just one day later, Senator Lindsey Graham would make a phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, asking Raffensperger if he had the power to throw out mail-in ballots from certain counties. So, yeah, a whole lot of wild things were happening on and around November 12th of 2020. And in the middle of all of that, on that day, the Senate made an incredibly consequential decision that went virtually unnoticed at the time. Nomination, the judiciary, Eileen Mercedes Cannon of Florida to be United States District Judge for the Southern District of Florida. Are there any senators in the chamber wishing to vote or wishing to change their vote? Seeing none, the yeas are 56, the nays are 21. The nomination is confirmed. That was the moment the Senate voted to confirm a young assistant U.S. attorney named Aileen Cannon to a lifetime appointment on the federal judiciary. Twelve Democrats voted with Republicans to approve her nomination, including Senator Dianne Feinstein, who was the top Democrat on the Judiciary Committee at that time. Now, during his presidency, Trump appointed 231 judges to the federal bench, which was an impressive number. One of the most successful parts of the entire Trump administration was his reshaping of the federal judiciary. It was, in many ways, the reason so many conservatives held their noses and supported Trump, the promises he made and the promises he kept about filling the courts with conservative judges. So Aileen Cannon was a part of that broader Trump success story at the courts. But if you were a Democrat, and honestly, even if you were a Republican, there were reasons to oppose Judge Cannon's appointment, reasons that went beyond ideology. At just 38 years old, Aileen Cannon had very little experience for someone nominated to be a federal judge, very little. She had never held a judgeship before, federal or otherwise. She had worked as an assistant U.S. attorney in Florida for a few years, but only four of the cases she worked on during that time went all the way to a jury verdict. And she had been the lead prosecutor on just two of those cases, both of them about firearms. The rest of Ms. Cannon's resume was similarly sparse. As the New York Times reports today, a Senate questionnaire asked for every published writing she had produced. She listed 20 items. Of those, 17 were pieces she had written in the summer of 2002 as a college intern at the Miami Herald Spanish language sister publication, El Nuevo Herald. Now, typically when judicial candidates are asked for works they have published, they cite law review articles, or opinion pieces about jurisprudence and legal theory. For example, the Senate today confirmed Biden nominee Dale Ho to a federal judgeship in the Southern District of New York. His Senate questionnaire included published writing like voting rights litigation after Shelby County, mechanics and standards in Section 2 vote denial claims, and silent at sentencing, waiver doctrine and the right to present mitigating evidence. By contrast, Aileen Cannon offered old newspaper articles she wrote with titles like Flamenco, An Explosion of Energy and Passion, 
and winners in the Library Quest competition. And tomatoes may reduce tumors. So it was an unusual set of writings for a lifetime appointment to the federal bench. The New York Times also reports that the questionnaire also asked her to provide all reports, memorandums, and policy statements she had written for any organization, all testimony or official statements on public or legal policy she had ever delivered to any public body, and all of her speeches, talks, panel discussions, lectures, or question and answer sessions. Aileen Cannon's response to that section? None. Despite all of this, she was confirmed on November 12th, 2020, and her short time on the bench has not added much in the way of experience. According to the Times, just four criminal cases that have come before her as a judge have ever gone to trial. And all of them were routine cases like a felon who was charged with illegally possessing a gun. Those four cases amount to just 14 days of trial experience in total. You have probably heard by now that Aileen Cannon is the judge who has been randomly selected to oversee the DOJ's indictment of the former president. And so far, there has been a lot of focus on any perceived bias toward the president who appointed her. She's a lifelong conservative and a member of the Federalist Society. And of course, during the early stages of this investigation, Judge Cannon made a consequential ruling against DOJ investigators and in favor of Trump and his defense team that prohibited the government from reviewing any of the documents obtained in its court-authorized search of Mar-a-Lago and essentially delayed the investigation for three months before it was overturned by the very conservative 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. So a lot of folks here have been concerned about bias. But looking at this reporting from The New York Times, the articles on flamenco dancing and tomato-based cancer cures, the, the fact that Judge Cannon has been on the federal bench for just two years and has overseen just four trials in her lifetime, not one of them having to do with national security matters. Perhaps that is the stuff we should be focused on as this judge oversees one of the most consequential, complex criminal cases in American history. Joining me now are Neil Katyal, former acting U.S. Solicitor General at the Department of Justice, and Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Both are MSNBC legal analysts. Barb, let me just first talk to you about Judge Cannon's CV and whether or not I, I found it alarming in its lack of, of breadth and depth on, depth on these issues that she's going to be confronting, presumably overseeing this case. How did you understand this reporting? What is your assessment of it? Yeah, you know, her, her credentials certainly are much thinner than most people who are applying to be federal judges. And 38 is quite young. You know, not to say that a person who's 38 is incapable of doing such an important job. It's just that they haven't had the kinds of experience that you might like to see in a judge. Somebody who's been to trial, who's, you know, seen verdicts, seen cases go haywire, all of the crazy things that can happen in a courtroom, uh, to be able to, you know, withstand the things that lawyers try. Sometimes lawyers try to push you, to bully you, to snow you. And, uh, you know, lawyers who've been around for a while, I think, are better suited to judgeships when they've had that experience. But she's not, you know, the youngest in the nation's history. The uh, ABA deemed her to be qualified, though not highly qualified. And my guess is uh, that had a lot to do with just her, her lack of experience. And so here she is, two years in, about to handle one of the most significant cases in the history of the country. 
Yeah. Neil, can we talk about the case in terms of what makes it different from most cases and, you know, what the thorniest aspects of this are? Are they the questions of executive privilege? Are they the classification, national security implications? Is it the is it just the the, the actual defendant and who he is? I mean, what do you think about this case is trickiest on its face? Yeah, there isn't any executive privilege issue. I mean, Donald Trump sees executive privilege in anything, but back in the reality-based world in which you and I live, there's no executive privilege claim in this case. I do think that the classified information privileges are important. Uh, Classified information issues are going to be difficult and take some time. And it's there where you really want experience. I mean, the fact that she's had four prior criminal trials is one thing, but to really have no prior experience with classified information is, I think, a, a real problem because anyone who's worked and handled classified information, you know a couple of things. You know there's such an extensive set of rules for prophylactic reasons because bad guys, foreign enemies, uh, terrorists, others are trying to get access to our intelligence information. So it's got to be protected in certain ways. But also you come to appreciate how that information was generated, the so-called sources and methods that generated. And you can see a document that is classified and it almost looks like a New York Times article. You know, it doesn't look that different. And indeed, you might have read much of it in the New York Times. But the way in which it's put and presented may reveal a source, may reveal a method and jeopardize lives in the field if that meth- if that co- document comes out or falls into the wrong hands. And so that's why you have such a pro- robust prophylactic set of rules. And here, in this criminal trial, Trump will try presumably a gray mail strategy. That's the strategy of saying, look, you're saying there's a classified document I mishandled. You got to show it in open court. And our intelligence community is always worried about that, again, because that itself discloses sources and methods. So there's a long compromise and dialogue between the Justice Department and the intelligence community in any sort of criminal trial. And one thing that happens sometimes is that you substitute under the Classified Information Procedures Act a sensitive document for something that's a lo- that looks like lo- that, that is less sensitive or that redacts the information in a way or another. Those are all things you really want someone with experience to handle. Um, but unfortunately, it looks like at this point, that's not what we have. Yeah. And we're going to dig into a lot of the ins and outs of the classified documents and how those make their way into a trial setting. But there are other I mean, beyond what you're saying, Neil, which is well taken, there are other areas where I think some folks think it's sort of been settled, like, for example, the crime fraud exception that um, Trump's lawyers have said, wait a second. No, no, no. no. We're going to go to Judge Cannon on this. Can we talk a little bit, Barb, about the pretrial motions that may take up quite a bit of the calendar uh, as far as this case coming to trial? I mean, one of the things, like I just said, is this notion that the, the DOJ can use the audio tapes recorded by Trump's lawyer after they pierce the attorney client privilege uh, using a mechanism known as the crime fraud exception. That ruling was delivered by a D.C.-based federal judge, Amy Berman Jackson. Can Aileen Cannon rule again on that and effectively take Evan Corcoran's audio tapes out of submission as a piece of evidence? Yes. So I imagine that Donald Trump will file all kinds of motions and that will, as you say, occupy a lot of time. But one of them I imagine that they will try to relitigate is the crime fraud exception. Now, Judge Howell, the chief judge in the District of Columbia, 
ruled that the crime fraud exception applied and that she could pierce the attorney-client privilege and allow Evan Corcoran to testify at the grand jury. I think there's an argument to be made that the law of the case is that that is crime fraud and every every judge who handles this case should accept that ruling. But I imagine an argument could be made that now we're talking about admissibility at trial, which is different from admissibility at the grand jury. And so I imagine Trump and his lawyers will file that motion and try to get Judge Cannon to get a different ruling on that to exclude that evidence. I imagine they will also try to suppress the evidence obtained in the search. They will probably make an argument for selective prosecution and that the case should be dismissed on that basis. There are rumors that they are going to file a motion to dismiss on the basis of prosecutorial misconduct. So I think there will be lots of motions, um, and most of them, I think, will lack merit. But if Judge Cannon should rule in Donald Trump's favor, the Justice Department can appeal those decisions pre-trial but it's going to result in lengthy delays, which is something the Justice Department doesn't want and absolutely will be Donald Trump's bottom line uh, game plan. Um, Neil, can we talk about something that Barb just mentioned, the prosecutorial misconduct claim? This is something that in the closing days right before this indictment was released, the Trump defense team was talking a lot about comments made by a DOJ investigator, Jay Bratt, to the lawyer for Walt Nauda, Robert Woodward. Can, can you talk a little bit about what you've heard in terms of that claim and whether it's something for the DOJ to be worried about, whether it's something that Judge Cannon could viably give uh, credence to? Yeah, every bad criminal defendant tries to make that kind of argument about prosecutorial misconduct. It's going nowhere. It's going nowhere fast. Um, in order to show prosecutorial misconduct like this, you'd have to show some sort of actual malice on the part of the prosecutor, which just is not at all within the realm of possibility. But I entirely agree with Barb. That's exactly the type of motion Trump will file. He will file a motion to try and relitigate the attorney-client crime fraud exception, even though our nation's second highest court at the D.C. Circuit has already ruled on that and said that the evidence here showed that Trump was trying to use his lawyer um, in order to further a crime. That's why this you know, really great privilege has been pierced. And to me, just kind of zooming out, the big picture here is that you know, I think that everything we've seen, every time Trump opens his mouth, the case against him gets stronger. Every time one of his lawyers opens one of their mouths, it's clear that his defenses and these motions don't have any substance to them. And that's why, you know, I think the trajectory of thinking on this indictment is so interesting. I mean, ever since the Mar-a-Lago raid, I can't came on your show and every other show saying, look, this is a really big deal. This is going to lead to an indictment. And that was dismissed by many people. But in the week just since the indictment, it hasn't even been a full week. I think we've seen just a remarkable constellation of people coming forth and saying, this indictment is really damning to Donald Trump. That's Bill Barr, his former attorney general. It's Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. It's Trump's own former chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. It's his Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton. It's like Trump's entire cabinet, Alex, has come out and read the indictment and said, whoa, wait a minute, this is damning. So given all that, you know, people I know are worried about what Trump's advantages are in a particular jurisdiction and the not. The problem is the facts are so aligned against him. 
Yeah, and I hear that. It's just that I can't help but pay attention to articles that, you know, respected legal minds such as Andrew Weissman and Ryan Goodman penned, you know, today in the Atlantic, Barb, suggesting that that Judge Aileen Cannon could actually, you know, be a, a, a significant concern here in terms of this case actually making it to trial. Because, though Neil, I think, rightfully points out, this case is uh, it is a very strong case that the DOJ is making. It's very straightforward. It's very simple. There are off-ramps, if you will, for her. And they suggest that, you know, the DOJ may have in its back pocket a potential indictment up in Bedminster, which is where some of the recordings Trump made were, where he acknowledges that he has classified documents in his possession and that he can't declassify them post-presidency. Do you think Bedminster exists as a sort of fail-safe for the DOJ, or is that a paranoid fantastical thinking. You know, it's an interesting theory. There's certainly allegations that it, it was at Bedminster in New Jersey where he disclosed to unauthorized people classified information. So it could be a basis for a charge. But, you know, it seems like the indictment in Florida is a very solid one. It's got uh, evidence, uh, 31 counts of Espionage Act violations, as well as six other counts against Donald Trump. And so I, I think they're going full speed on that one. I, I don't know about this back pocket New Jersey. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't exist. I think people are rightfully concerned about Aileen Cannon, in part because of her inexperience. She's young, but, you know, whenever you get a judge, there's always a risk that they have not dealt with this kind of case before. Many judges have been only civil lawyers and have never dealt with criminal law whatsoever, let alone classified information. But I think the thing that has people most spooked is her ruling in the, the search warrant matter. Uh, the ruling was was really lawless. I, uh, I don't know if that was a, a lack of experience that we were seeing or if she was simply swayed by the right-wing talking points. But she um, completely ignored the legal standard to impose one of her own. And so I think that is what causes people to be worried that she might be biased in favor of Donald Trump. But they have appellate remedies that they could use uh, if necessary. And if she has a ruling that is too uh, off kilter, I think we might see at that point a motion by the Justice Department to recuse her. Not before mm -hmm. then, but if she does file something that seems really um, out of out of the box. I mean, when you look at her body of uh, experience and you look at that ruling on the search warrant, the fact that the 11th Circuit came to uh, the rescue <laughs> is an interesting testament to how bias may be put aside and ultimately Trump inexperience. But we shall see how this unfolds. Neil Katyal and Barbara McQuaid, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Alex. We have a lot more to get to this evening. Republicans are finding themselves in quite a pickle about how to respond to Donald Trump's federal indictment. Our very own Steve Kornacki joins me right here at the desk to break it all down. He may even wear a jacket. But first, what challenges lie ahead for prosecutors who have to rely on top secret documents to make their case to a jury? A top national security prosecutor is gonna join me to explain how all of that is going to unfold, how it is even possible. Stay with us. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. 
Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. August of last year, when the FBI executed that search warrant at Mar-a-Lago, investigators found 102 documents with classified markings. At the time, we got a few details about those documents, mostly that they seemed pretty important and pretty secret. But now that the DOJ's indictment has been made public, well, we have a much fuller picture. According to the indictment, the FBI recovered 17 top secret, 54 secret, and 31 confidential documents from Trump's office and from an unguarded storage room. And now, under the Espionage Act, the DOJ is charging Trump with the willful retention of 31 of those documents. And that includes a top-secret document dated May 6, 2019, concerning White House intelligence briefing related to foreign countries, including military activities and planning, a top-secret document dated June 20th, of 2020 concerning nuclear capabilities of a foreign country, a top-secret undated document concerning military attacks by a foreign country, an undated document concerning military contingency planning of the United States, and a secret document dated December of 2019 concerning foreign country support of terrorist acts against U.S. interests. That list goes on. The indictment also accuses Trump of disseminating classified information on at least two occasions, but it very conspicuously does not charge him for it. The first instance in that dissemination allegation took place in July of 2021 at Trump's golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey, where Trump allegedly showed and described to four people a plan to attack Iran, none of whom possessed a security clearance. The second instance was in August or September of 2021, also at Bedminster, where Trump showed a representative of his political action committee, who again did not possess a security clearance. He showed him a classified map related to a military operation. According to investigators, Trump told this person he should not be showing him the map, but he did it anyway. Now, we don't know if federal prosecutors will maybe eventually charge Trump with dissemination of classified information. They certainly have that option. But we do know that the bulk of evidence the DOJ has amassed here relies on some very secret, very confidential documents. And that raises a very important question. How do prosecutors convince the jury of Trump's guilt when the charges are based on top secret information that the jury might not be allowed to see? Joining us now is David Aaron, former federal prosecutor and intelligence attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice and a former Manhattan assistant assistant district attorney. His experience includes investigating and litigating cases involving, wait for it, Espionage Act violations. David, it's great to see you. There is no better person to be talking to about this. Thank you. And I will say I have found it a little bit confusing to, to really understand, OK, if this stuff is all very secret and boy, does it sound secret. How do you actually use it in a trial? What's the process by which the DOJ can actually show this stuff in a meaningful way? It's a great question. It's an important question. Um, In a case like this, the classified information has to be shown to the jury. Uh, The jury has to look at it and decide for itself whether the information qualifies as national defense information. The government can say it's classified, but only the jury can say that it's national defense information. That's a question of fact. So unlike other cases where you might be able to summarize 
uh, classified information or substitute something that's less sensitive, this actually has to be shown to the jury. And that means it also has to be provided to the defense. Mm. Uh, the government wants to protect this information from disclosure, but it also needs to afford the defendant his due process rights. So there are procedures that are available to the government to allow that to happen to provide a fair trial while protecting the information. So how is the jury, what are those, I mean, without getting in too granular, I mean, is it just heavily redact? I mean, how do you, how do you do that? How does a jury get access to determine whether it's NDI? Sure. Well, it can't be redacted. Anything you redact, uh, the jury wouldn't be able to take into consideration. So there are procedures that the, the government will ask for before trial. This will all get worked out before trial um, under the Classified Information Procedures Act, which provides a framework for those uh, decisions by the judge. Now, there's a, a procedure that's likely to be used here because summaries and substitutions won't work, and that's called the silent witness rule. Mm -hmm. And that's a way to show that evidence to the jury and let the defendant see it and let the defendant ask questions about it, but in a way that disguises it or, or uses coded references. Ah. So, the so jury, instead of saying Iran, you'd say Ireland. Well, you'd is say, it, that, you'd say it, country A. Uh, okay. We wouldn't want right. to give any misapprehensions. Sure. Um, but uh, no, you, you might use country A instead of a specific country, person A instead of a specific person, and the jury would have a key. Or you might show these documents that are referred to in the indictment to the jury, and you wouldn't put them up on the screen like in a regular case. And your witness might say to the jury, if you look at page two, line five, and describe what's going on there without revealing any of that classified information. Ah, that is tricky. Yeah, and the, the critical thing is the defense has to be able to use that same code to do effective cross-examination or else it's not a fair trial. Right, because the defense needs access to yeah. these documents in a meaningful way. I would assume, I mean, we read a litany of oh, a selection of some of the documents in their sort of vague but but specific uh, descriptions of what what is in these classified top secret and secret documents. I would assume the, the, the DOJ made a, a very, it was a very conscious effort and a very specific effort to call from the 137 documents, I think. Am I making that up? I can't remember the number. The number of documents they charged on, I think, is 31. That's not yes. all the documents. They, they cherry-picked. Can you talk a little bit about why they didn't take all the documents he had retained uh, unlawfully and instead picked these 31, what the metric was? Sure. And, you know, I don't know exactly what metrics they applied in this case, but, you know, I've handled cases involving very large amounts of classified information and you have to choose what are you going to use to prosecute. One thing you want to do is give yourself a manageable case, mm -hmm. a case that can be tried in a reasonable amount of time. And if you assign, you know, one count to each document, um, then you have a, you know, manageable number of counts. And if there's any problem, uh, with evidence or, or other issues with one count, you can dismiss that one or lose on that one and the other ones survive. And when it comes to the specific documents that you're choosing, if you have a lot to choose from, you're going to be talking to the intelligence community about which ones will the intelligence community allow the prosecutors to use? Right. And the prosecutors want to use the most sensitive ones possible uh, that are very straightforward and easy for the jury to understand. The intelligence community really wants to hold those back and not risk them. And so, you know, the two sides kind of go back and forth and they, they settle on what some people refer to as the Goldilocks documents. They're, they're sensitive enough. They're not too hot. They're not too cold. They're just right. Exactly. They are just right. They, they are serious enough to convey to the jury the, uh, you know, how they relate to national security, why their disclosure could cause harm, but they're not so super, super secret that the intelligence community 
just just won't allow them out. So the suggestion here is there's even more secret paper out there that may, Trump may have uh, retained down at Mar-a-Lago. We just don't know about it because the intelligence community is like, uh-uh, DOJ, not on our watch. Uh, it's, it's certainly a possibility. Um, what what of this article from Andrew Weissman and Ryan Goodman, they, they suggest that the dissemination claim, which is in the indictment, that, that the DOJ isn't charging on a potential dissemination because they're keeping effectively uh, a card in their back pocket. Do you do you think that, you know, what we have in the indictment, the evidence that's cited is strong enough for a dissemination case? It's, it's hard to say. Um, there's not as much detail given about that as, as there is about other parts of the indictment. And there's no way to tell looking at the indictment how, how easy it would be to prove, uh, the dissemination or disclosure of, of those two items of, of potential national defense information. So I don't know, uh, why those, uh, weren't charged in New Jersey. They, they, they may be. Um, they probably couldn't be charged in Florida because no aspect of those particular alleged crimes occurred in Florida. So there wouldn't be venue. Well, maybe this is this traveling circus will end up in New Jersey sometime. David Aaron, it's so enlightening and, and so valuable to chat with you. Thanks for your time. Tonight. Thank you so much. Coming up later in the show, America's sweetheart, Steve Kornacki, helps us make sense of what's happening inside the Republican Party. But first, Trump's campaign and his qu- pledge to, quote, totally obliterate the deep state. It is all pretty confusing once you hear what the deep state has been up to. That's next. Stay with us. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. When I'm reelected and we will get reelected, we have no choice. We're not going to have a country anymore. I will totally obliterate the deep state. We will obliterate the deep state. And we know who they are. I know exactly who they are. Obliterate the deep state. That's what criminal defendant and former president of the United States, Donald Trump, had to say last night, a few hours after his first court appearance, where he was indicted for mishandling classified documents, including national security secrets. Trump's war against the federal bureaucracy, the deep state, has gone on for over six years now. A battle against an alleged shadow network of agitators within the U.S. government and intelligence community who have aligned to attack him. We got to remember, as we have seen in recent years, our opponents have shattered every principle of justice, ransacked every institution, abused every power and unleashed every weapon of the deep state. Either the deep state destroys America or we destroy the deep state. That's the way it's got to be. With you at my side, we will totally obliterate the deep state. With you at my side, we will 
demolish the deep state. Either we have a deep state or we have a democracy. We're going to have one or the other. And we're right at the tipping point. But the thing is, well, yeah, there might be a former government, there might be a former government employees linked to subversive activity. This is what they've been up to. Take a look at the gentleman in these photos, the one with the yellow circle around his head. He was spotted in the halls of the Capitol, in the rotunda, inside congressional offices, all over the building. He is a former National Security Agency employee. And today, a judge sentenced him to two weeks in prison for storming the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. The NSA employee did so with associates whom authorities describe as members of the white nationalist America First movement. If you remember, their leader is Internet personality Nick Fuentes, who's known for promoting white supremacy and anti-Semitism. He's also the person Donald Trump had dinner with at Mar-a-Lago last fall. And Kanye West was also there. And then earlier this week, two Marines who worked in intelligence gathering pleaded guilty to their involvement in the January 6th insurrection. They were on active duty when they stormed the Capitol. According to the court record, they traveled to D.C. from their base at Quantico. They entered the Capitol minutes after it was breached, and they joined in chants of stop the steal and four more years. So deep state at the January 6th riot, pushing the big lie, demanding four more years of Donald Trump. These are not isolated examples. There are at least 100 others, potential members of the so-called deep state, who have worked in intelligence or served in the military or worked in federal law enforcement only to be arrested and charged for their involvement in attacking the Capitol on January 6th. Over the next several months, you will hear Trump and his allies claim that the Justice Department has been weaponized and that deep state government officials are going after him and other conservatives. And when that happens, check the court records. Coming up, our own Steve Kornacki ditches the big board and joins me right here to discuss the Republican High Wire Act around the indictment of Donald Trump. That's up next. Stay with us. There are about 500 days to go before the 2024 election and 500 candidates in the Republican field. Almost. Despite the bevy of choices here, the leader of the pack remains the twice impeached and the now federally indicted one-term president, Donald Trump. Now, since that indictment was unsealed last week, most Republicans are either standing by or avoiding the topic altogether, even in districts where that calculus is risky. Of the 18 Republicans representing House districts that President Biden won in 2020, just one of those Republicans has criticized Trump. Congressman Don Bacon from Nebraska is the lone Republican of that group to say, it's obvious what the president did was wrong. There's no way to defend that. And I just think the emperor has no clothes. Others, like Congressman Nick LaLota of New York and Mike Garcia of California, have called the indictment politically motivated, reeking of political retaliation and a continuation of eight years of bad behavior from the far left. Again, these are Republicans representing districts that voted for President Biden in 2020, swing districts, swing districts that Republicans represent in a narrowly Republican-controlled Congress. So, okay, that position may get them through the GOP primary, where 81 percent of the party believes the charges were politically driven, according to a Reuters-Ipsos poll that was conducted after Trump was indicted. But then after that is the general election, and there's no better person to talk to about all these dynamics. Then America's sweetheart, Steve Kornacki, MSNBC national political correspondent, who occasionally attends this show in a jacket 
Deeply appreciate it, Steve. It's my sign of respect for you, Alex. God bless. Thank you so much for that. And I have nothing but respect and admiration for you, buddy. Um, now that we've gotten out of the way, um, if you are a New York Republican, right? First of all, a lot more Republicans went to the House in 2020 than did in 2018, right? Yep. Which was kind of a route for Republicans. But if you're a New York Republican in this moment, what is your calculation as far as the Trump indictment and how and what to say about it? Yeah, it's it's really tricky, I think, for, for Republicans in New York, because it, it's interesting if you looked back, and I think folks who watched the election coverage last November remember, Democrats came very close to holding on to the House. And really, you could say New York was the lone reason. I mean, there were other, others out out there. But you could have found 218 seats for Democrats with a couple missed opportunities in New York state. And they are these Republicans who won districts that Biden had won and that Biden had won comfortably. We're talking eight, 10, 12 point margins in some of these districts. And I think what you saw happen in New York that helped these Republicans and you saw it in some other places. California is another example. You mentioned Mike Garcia. He's from sort of the far fringes of Los Angeles County, Republican who got reelected. These are places where Local issues, local concerns, I think about crime in the nearby cities, Mm. about quality of life issues. Those issues that Republicans thought were going to resonate a lot more nationally didn't really take nationally. But they took in New York, they took in parts of California, and they took in a couple other pockets of the country, and they really propelled those Republicans. So it's interesting when you look at these Republican incumbents moving ahead to 2024, Republicans need them to hold these seats if they're going to hold the House. Is the Trump factor the thing that's going to drive yeah. those districts or is it still going to be something on that local crime quality of life level? Yeah. If you if you guys could bring up the full screen of the, the representatives, the 18 Republican representatives who are were elected in districts that Biden won. I mean, the, the lion's share of them are from New York and California. And I just wonder, you know, let's talk about Mike Garcia. I mean, he's out there with pretty strong words against Democrats. Right. And does that's. Does that surprise you? There's, I understand the calculation of I'm not going to say anything. I am going to, or I'm going to say something uh, critical of President Trump, because this is, after all, a district that Biden won. But to go out and really tag the far left is the problem here. Does, I mean, what, what's the political calculation there? Garcia is such an interesting case here. So, so to, to understand his story, it's this. In 2020, when Joe Biden was winning his district easily, okay, and again, this is, it's a district contained in Los Angeles County, but it's sort of the far reaches of Los Angeles County. So you're away from downtown LA. Okay. It's almost like Long Island is to New York. His district is to the city of Los Angeles. Big Biden district in 2020, he won by 333 votes in 2020. It was the Hmm. second closest House race in the country. Democrats were very, very bullish on taking that seat in 2022. They put up the same candidate. But when you talk about those quality of life issues that voters in sort of the, the, the far reaches of L.A. County felt that were related to L.A., he won by double digits wow. in 2022. In fact, he was the 218th seat that we called that officially gave Republicans control of the House. So it's again, it's a, it's a really interesting dynamic where if you're looking at 2020 and you're ta- you're showing some of his rhetoric right now, Biden Trump rhetoric right now, you're saying that's a guy who should be in trouble. But yeah. that's also a guy who in 2022, as his party was not having a great year in the midterms, actually improved his performance basically by double digits. This is all very confounding. And at one point, there's like a story that these sort of 
you know, congressional races tell us about the larger concerns in the Republican Party as it as it pertains to Trump and his indictment and how the candidates are dealing with it, which is a very incoherent, unarticulated strategy thus far. Right. You have Chris Christie, who has the clearest line of attack against Trump. Right. He has the easiest road to hoe. But in terms of how Mike Pence and to some degree Ron DeSantis are managing it, Mike Pence is kind of both and. And Ron DeSantis is just, I think, tra- practicing a strategy of avoidance. How, like, how, what lessons do you see from that 2022 election as it's mapped onto 2024? Well, I mean, yeah, you saw in 2022 that in, in almost every case when Republican electorates were faced with the choice between Trump-aligned candidates in primaries and, and non-Trump-endorsed, non-Trump-aligned, they went the Trump-aligned route. And you look at the polling right now. There was one that came out today. Quinnipiac put a poll out today of the 2024 Republican race. And Trump was ahead by 30 points. Yeah. And he was over 50 percent in the poll. And they had just taken a poll three weeks ago before the indictment. And he was ahead by 31 points. So it's essentially unchanged. No sign in the polling average, no sign in this particular Quinnipiac poll of any slippage for Trump among Republicans. And you see, I think, you know, Christie's a different case here because, you know, he's kind of got nothing to lose here. He's, right. he's trying this, this, this new strategy. But for a Republican like DeSantis, you can see those, those gears kind of turning mm-hmm. strategically that have some echoes of 2016 when you had these Republicans saying, geez, you know, our base seems to like him. I don't want to be the guy that takes the first swing. Maybe somebody else will. Maybe somebody else will take him down. And, then and we I'll see be what happens, and Steve. You wonder if that's going to happen all over. Again. Uh, Democrats are being advised by the DNC not to talk about this. The White House is staying mum on the topic, both for political reasons and legal reasons. I mean, we, we understand that it's complicated for Republicans. Do you feel like it's equally as complicated for Democrats, especially in swing districts? I think for Democrats right now, look, just the, all the news coverage is about this. So, I, you know, it, it almost would hurt them to be sort of throwing themselves right there into the fray front and center because it would it would only feed Trump's idea that this is somehow a, you know, a partisan attack on him. So if you're a Democrat, I, I think you sit back at this point strategically. Your best move is to just sit back and let this play out. But I would expect Democrats in the 2024 campaign to be making this a major issue, to be making this something they're reminding folks of frequently. In that Quinnipiac poll, they did match Trump versus Biden 24. It was Biden 48 percent, Trump 44. Three weeks ago, it was 46, 44 so if there has been some, I mean, that could be statistical blip. If there's been yeah. movement, that's the kind of movement we're talking about. Oh, Steve, come back always, please. You don't even have to wear a jacket next time. It's great to see you, buddy. Thank hey, you for your time. Great to see time. you too, Alex. Thank you. We have one more story for you tonight. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker is banning the bands, the book bands. We'll tell you all about it right after the break. Book bands are about censorship, marginalizing people marginalizing ideas and facts. Regimes ban books, not democracies. We refuse to let a vitriolic strain of white nationalism coursing through our country determine whose histories are told, not in Illinois. That was Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker this week announcing a brand new strategy for fighting against the recent wave of book bans across the U.S. The governor signed a state law that forbids Illinois public libraries, including public school libraries, from banning books. 
Libraries will be required to adopt the American Library Association's Library Bill of Rights that commits to not banning material because of partisan or doctrinal disapproval or instituting their own policy prohibiting banning books at the risk of losing crucial state funds. And although protecting libraries from censorship should not be a partisan issue here, let me note that the bill was passed by the Democratic-led state legislature with zero yes votes from Republicans. The new law in Illinois is a rare counterpoint to the headlines that you've seen across the country about attempts by conservative groups to remove books they consider unsuitable for children from taxpayer-funded public schools and libraries, books which are largely about the LGBTQ community and or people of color. Now, although Illinois has passed the first law of its kind, it may not be the last state to do so. The New Jersey legislature, which is, by the way, also led by Democrats, is considering a similar bill. That's the show for tonight. See you again tomorrow.